0: When you hear the two words, boldness and humility, how many of you think of opposites? You know, you're either bold, loud, and you're, you're out there, or you're humble, and you're meek, and you're quiet. But you know, in God's kingdom, the two of those work together in perfect harmony. And we see that in Nehemiah's life. This is a man who is incredibly humble, yet incredibly incredibly bold, all at the same time. And he never has to choose between them. It's not like, well, today I'm going to be bold, today I'm going to be humble. It's not going back and forth. Boldness and humility are actually two sides of the coin of faith. They're always there, they're always working together in God's kingdom, Because when he calls us to do something, we, of course, always have to be humble. It's his work. And yet, God doesn't call his people to be weak and timid. He calls us to be bold. And so today, we're going to look at how boldness and humility uh, work together in Nehemiah's moment as he looks at the king. Now, I know the scripture says 1 through 20. Uh, We're going to read 1 through 8. But we'll see uh, later as you go through, I hope you kind of read through this on your own, you'll see these same principles at work in the second half of this chapter, of chapter 2. Boldness and humility are at work throughout chapter 2 in Nehemiah in how he handles uh, the situations he finds himself in. And so let's look, starting in verse 1 of Nehemiah, and it says, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, if, if, you ha- you know, if you're making a movie, this is a dramatic scene right here. This is one where they zoom in and the music you know, kind of hits. Because you know that something is now happening that everything else is riding on. Have you ever had that moment in your life? A, a decisive moment. You know, and it doesn't have to be a bad thing. I mean, this is, this is ultimately leading towards a good thing, but it's still scary. It's still frightening. It's still, you know, your heart starts pounding. You know that, that life will not be the same after this moment. One way or the other, it's changing. Because if, I mean, think about Nehemiah here. If the king doesn't answer the way he wants, he's just had a very bold request. That could change His relationship with this king and so either way he knows that there is a huge risk here but one of the things that I want us to notice right off the bat is that this is about God's timing and not ours God's timing is always perfect now we tell ourselves that but let's just be honest how many of how many of us in here struggle with that still there are wow Y'all are awesome. No, we, we want to make things happen, right? I mean, we, it's just like, God, why not now? Come on, let's do this. You see, Nehemiah gives us a, a bit of insight into this that we just read over a lot of times, mainly because we don't use the Jewish calendar. It says, in the month of Nisan, that's four months later than chapter 1 when it says it was the month of Kislev, four months of waiting, of praying, four months, think about this, four months for Nehemiah to wrap his head around, how am I going to ask the king of the known world right now, okay, the most powerful man on earth at that moment, how am I going to ask him to let me go rebuild my people's kingdom? That could be considered treason, couldn't it? I mean, hey, I know we lost and we serve you, but could I go back and rebuild the fortress, the city walls, so that my people can be secure again? You'd want to run through that a few times in your own head, wouldn't you? You'd want to uh, pray about that, you know, a lot. God, are you sure you want me to do this? You see, when God gives a vision, he has a timeline for its fulfillment. And that timeline is not going to change one bit based on what we want or don't want. God has his timing, and it will not happen one moment faster than God intends. And yet, we also really can't stop it. If God wants something to happen, it's going to happen, but it's going to happen in his timing. And so when we get a vision from God, when we know God has put something in front of us, one of the first things we've got to come to terms with is, I'm still not in control of this. It's God's vision. He's using me to fulfill it. I have a role in this, but I'm not the one that's ultimately going to make this happen. Only God can make it happen. And and so what this means is that we have to trust God to fulfill the vision he has given us. And part of accepting God's timing is literally learning to trust God when we have no outward reason to do so. Now let me say that again. It's learning to trust God when we have no outward reason to do so. You see, we, we say things like that when, when we talk, but what does that mean? When we have no outward reason to trust. That means Nehemiah really doesn't have anything to hang his hope on of, oh, well, you know, this king, you know, lots of kingdoms are rebuilding themselves around. I, they probably weren't. Kings kind of like to hold on to their power back then, uh, you know. They didn't just exactly rebuild kingdoms at will, with, with, you know, that were their rivals. And, and so Nehemiah had to trust that, okay, God's going to do it. He's put it in his heart. He knows he's going to do it, but he can't force it. He has to wait for God to open the door for it to happen the way it's supposed to happen. And so he's waiting, in in a sense, for that signal from God that now is the time to ask. Now is the moment that is right. Because when we don't trust God and we try to force it, bad things happen. And I mean that. It, it, It won't disrupt the vision. God is still going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. But we can sure make life more difficult for ourselves in the interim and an example of that is Abraham in the Old Testament he's 75 years old and God gives him a vision and says what you will have a son you will have a son now when was that son born the promised child was born 25 years later when he was 100 but in the interim Abraham and Sarah his wife got tired of waiting and decided, you know what, maybe it's up to us to force this, and Sarah gives sends his, her handmaiden into Abraham, and they have a child named Ishmael with a woman named Hagar, and guess what, it just caused trouble, that's all it did during that time, Sarah ended up hating Hagar and was sending her away, and there were curses, and there were busted up families now, and An entire group of people was created, and God blessed him and says, I'm going to make you numerous, and he says about that people, you're going to be a wild donkey of a man, and your fist will be against the world, and the world's fist will be against you. We have to learn to trust God's timing, and we can't force it when we get tired of waiting. And, And so... There's nothing we can do to, to push things forward. And so at the core of trusting God's timing is humility. This is where humility enters into fulfilling a vision that God has given us. Because humility says, I can accomplish nothing on my own. I am fully dependent on God, and, and I have to be humble and allow, and I know that sounds weird, but I have to allow God to work and, and me just get out of the way. God is not dependent on our obedience, but our obedience is necessary for us to have the blessing and to be a part of the vision that God has given. And humility says that really this isn't my work, this is just my obedience in this moment. And there's a huge difference in thinking that it's dependent on me and having the privilege of just being a part of what God is doing. And and so we see Nehemiah, he's humble, and it keeps his priorities in line for four months he waits now what does he do during that time four months of waiting praying probably planning preparing maybe rehearsing <laughs> we don't read you know that he talked to anybody else he probably didn't because that could you know gossip and, and that could go very badly for him hey did you know Nehemiah is planning on going back and you know that word gets back to the king that's probably not a uh a good day for him, and, and so four months of of waiting. Now, I bring that up because what happens is one day I think the weight, literal weight, the the pressure of what he was carrying around inside, of of knowing that this has to happen, it finally got to him physically. Because what does he do? He goes before the king with the wine, and he brings it to him. And the king looks and says, hey, what's wrong? You're sad. And he says, I've never been sad in the king's presence before. He was always, you know, excited. He was always supportive. He was always, you know, the guy. And he's, he's kind of the, the king's number one right there, the cupbearer. And he shows up and he's depressed. The the anxiety and the worry and the weight and the, the heaviness of everything that he had going on inside of him that he hadn't been able to talk about yet, it finally started to weigh him down. Now, was Nehemiah sinning? Was he wrong during that time? No. Sometimes God just has to put pressure on us to make things happen. Sometimes he has to make us uncomfortable to move things forward. Sometimes he just sends us into trials, and yes, God will cause pain. He won't waste pain. He doesn't cause useless pain. He will always use it for something good, and that's what happened. After four months of this, it finally starts to show physically on Nehemiah. And the king says, hey, this is nothing but sadness of heart. And what the king is saying right there is don't you dare try to uh, brush this off. Something's wrong. What's wrong, Nehemiah? And so what do we learn through this is that waiting time is prep time. You know, there's a statement that Christians often make that, to me, it just rankles in my soul. I don't like it. I never have. And it's one that we use a lot, and that is, well, I'm just waiting on God. And you know why... Maybe I'm overreacting to that, and and I mean that. I may be overreacting, but that statement just seems full of arrogance to me. You're waiting on God. I'm waiting on God. Like, I have all my stuff together, and I'm just waiting on God to figure out that I'm ready. Guess what? If I'm waiting, it's because I'm not ready. It's not because God is, you know, getting his stuff together. If if I'm waiting, it's because I still have work to do. Now, maybe I don't know what that work is, and so I think I'm ready. You ever thought you were ready and you really weren't? It was really fun when you got into it, wasn't it? When you think, man, I was ready for this, and then you find out how not ready you were, and you go, wow. What would you have given at that moment for a little more prep time? To be more ready than, you know, just to have a little, now that you know what you know, you'd like to look back and go, whew, man, I'd like just a little bit more time before that to have gotten ready. Well, if we can put ourselves in that state of if we haven't seen God move yet, it's likely because God's waiting on us. It's likely because He's waiting on us, not us waiting on Him. And so When God gives a vision, his timing is perfect. And so whatever time is spent waiting is time that we should be preparing in humility, thinking I need to get as much as I can. I need to learn as much as I can. I need to be as ready as I possibly can be. And if I think I'm ready, I'm probably not, so I need to get more ready. And then preparing for the boldness and the action that the vision will require when it comes to reality. Because when God gives a vision, God doesn't work small. It may start small. What did he say? have faith the size of a mustard seed. You'll be able to move the mountain. You know, Look at the mustard seed. It's the smallest, yet it grows into the largest of the garden plants where birds perch on it. God's visions are never small. It may start small, but it always turns into something big. And so if God puts something in your mind and your heart to do, You need to prepare yourself early for where it could be going. Now, we stay humble and think small beginnings. Just because it may be going somewhere big doesn't mean that I get to think, you know, thoughts of grandeur, delusions of grandeur. I have to be faithful, I have to be humble, and I have to to obey what God has given me right now in the moment. And I have to take it one step at a time. If God is making you wait, I promise, it's not because God isn't ready. Proverbs 24, 27. This is a verse that a long time ago I read, and it really stuck out to me. This is just one that's kind of, you know, you have those verses that just kind of hang in your mind, and you come back to them a lot. This one says, prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. What can we learn from this proverb is that there's always prep work that precedes the work we want to do. There's always work that needs to be done before we get to the the good stuff. If God gives us a vision, we'll likely get excited about it. And we think, yeah, that's what I want to see this, I want to see this. But there's always going to be this work that has to be done beforehand to secure the victory before you even start. Now, for as a church, I want you to think about this. Because for Nehemiah, what did he need to do? He had four months to plan. And we read he, he was ready when he says, Hey, what do you need? He says, Hey, I need letters to this person. I need this person. He's done his homework. He knows exactly. He has, when a time, he has the answers that the king needs, and he's ready. And he knows, I'm going to need this, I'm going to need this, and I'm going to need this. And I'm going to be, he says, How long are you going to be gone? I'm going to be gone this long. See, he's prepared for when the moment came. Had he not been prepared, that could have tripped everything up. So it's the prep work that secures the victory later. Now, I want you to think of it like this. As a church, what would be the outside work and the work in the field that needs to be secured before we build our house? What would be our prep work as a church that God says, you know what, establish this First, make sure this is good, then you can get to the other stuff. I believe that that kind of work for a church is a defined discipleship process and outreach. I think those two things. I think that is the outdoor work, the, the field work, if you will. You see, for a farming community, this one right here, what is he saying? He's saying, hey, you go clear the field and you make sure that your crops, that your future, is secured, that you can grow your crops, that you can survive, then go build your house and your comforts and the things that, you know, you're going to enjoy, but you make sure you secure what's necessary first. Well, for a church, for us as a church to succeed, what is it that we have to have? We've got to have outreach and we've got to have discipleship. All the rest of it, while still important, if we don't have those two, we don't get to do the other stuff. You know, eventually it dries up. And I have seen it. I have been a part of churches that at one time had robust outreach and discipleship, and man, they grew, and it was there, and then they stopped. And I don't know why, but they stopped. They literally just stopped doing it. Now, here's the thing. When a church stops doing those things, death doesn't happen immediately. Because you've been doing it, you reap the fruits of it, and you reap the fruits for a long time until one day people look up and go, huh, things really changed. Where'd everybody go? And there's a small core of people that are standing there going, what happened? And almost every time as you look back on the history of that church, you will find there was a time they began to value working on their house more than working in their field. And you see, Nehemiah understood this principle and so he prepared himself ahead of time, so that when the moment came, he was ready. He took care of the outdoor work first, and he didn't worry about himself. And and so, we, as we move forward, and we, we start to establish what it is that God wants us to do, what it is that he wants us to, to establish and never let go. Because, I mean, you know, our church could grow and it could, you know, we could take off or, or we could change styles of worship. I mean, there are so many things that could change. But you know what's never going to change about being the church of Jesus Christ? The body? Outreach and discipleship. I don't care what denomination you are. I, I don't care what style of music you have. It doesn't matter if you, you, you know, when you have service or if you, you, you have Sunday morning or you have, you know, Saturday night. None of that stuff makes a difference. If you're truly succeeding for God, there are two things that are going to happen, and that is outreach and discipleship. Every church has their version of what that means and how they do it. Every church that is healthy has those well-defined, and they are committed to them above everything else. And, and so I want you, as I said, you know, last week I challenged you to pray as to what your role in the, the coming months and years uh, will be in the church. Well, I want you now to, to start thinking about that, of are we as a church focused on the things we need to focus on? And that begins with all of us here. With me as the pastor leading and and pushing in the direction of doing the things, you know, taking care of the outside work first, And, and this is just all about priorities. What is most important to us? Unfortunately, too many of us worry about comfort first, which is working on the house first. It's the field work that makes working on the house possible. You know, if you build a beautiful house back then, but you didn't plant a crop, you're going to lose that house. And there are churches closing all over our country because they stopped doing the outdoor work. They stopped planting the seed. They stopped doing outreach. They stopped doing the foundational things that God has told us to do. And there's a movement all across our country, too, of revitalization. You know, revitalizing churches. And that's a great move, and it needs to happen. What that move basically is, is to go into dying churches and, you know, try to bring them back to life. You know what that always includes? Every book on revitalization and every talk I've ever heard, you know what it includes? Every time? Outreach and discipleship. Every time. It's just going back in and getting people to recommit to, hey, here's some basic principles. If you start doing these and you get people here, you'll start growing again. And so in order to do that, we have to be like Nehemiah and we have to be bold for God. This is where boldness comes into this. What does it mean to be bold? You know, when somebody says that's a bold statement, that's a bold action, what is it saying? It's saying you're willing to put yourself out there. It means you're willing to do it. It means you're willing to step into this not knowing exactly where it's going to go. It takes courage to be bold. It takes courage to fulfill a vision that God has given. God doesn't give easy visions. Did you know that? I I mean, if if God doesn't give small visions, it's always, you know, something large for his kingdom. It's always going to grow into something meaningful. Then that means it's not ever going to be easy. And Nehemiah is on the clock here. He knows, like, when he leaves and goes to start rebuilding, he's given a time that he's going to be gone, and he's given a time that he's going to be back. And you know what? That king expects it. He doesn't get to, you know, send a messenger, hey, I'm going to be a little longer. It, it didn't work that way. And so it took tremendous courage From him. And so look back again at verse 2. It says, And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah and to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long it would be gone, and when will you return? Boldness. Defined as requiring or exhibiting courage. Nehemiah knows this is the time. This is it. God has opened the door. All he has to do now is be honest. He doesn't even have to ask. Isn't it? I mean, see how God did this. Nehemiah could look and say, like, "God, why am I so weighted down? Why is this so? This is a heavy burden you've given me, God. Why is this so hard?" But because it was so hard and it began to affect him physically, it got the king's attention. <clears throat> and we see that the king actually cares about him. I mean, if, if you're depressed and you're stressed like that, and a person looks at you and, you know, they know you, and they're like, hey, what's wrong? They have an eye, you know. He could have been a cold, heartless person that doesn't care. You know, bring me my wine and go back over. I don't care what your troubles are. But the king wasn't like that. And God opened the door for Nehemiah here. But there's something that we, we cannot read over. Because later on, we're going to see tremendous courage and resolve out of Nehemiah. When he starts rebuilding this wall, he does some amazing things as just one man accomplishing something. His, his resolution is steadfast. His, his courage is there. I mean, he just does not waver. And so when Nehemiah writes, I was very much afraid. I think sometimes words have a propensity in the Bible for understatement. It, you know, when he took the time to write, this was moment I was very much, I, I think his heart was about to pound out of his chest. He knew he was risking his life in this moment. He knew that this was it. He was afraid. Don't let that make you think that somehow you failed because you're afraid in moving forward when God wants you to do. You just can't let that fear stop you. That's what being bold is, is that we step through the fear with courage to obey God anyway. But we don't deny it. I mean, there are people who are like, oh, I'm afraid, I must not be trusting God. No, you're afraid because you're a human being. It's okay, just don't be controlled by it. Understand that our God is bigger. You don't have to live by that fear. Sometimes God just calls us to face that fear. Why? Because there is no risk-free, safe vision from God. Let me say that again. There is no such thing as a risk-free vision from God. Nobody gets a free pass on that if you're going to serve God. And we have forgotten that in the American church. And I mean it, we have forgotten it. We talk about the Bible heroes, but I want you to think about what they faced. The Apostle Paul was literally kicked out of every single city he went to. Stoned to death. Whipped. Beaten. Imprisoned. Now, how many of us have the resolve to be able to say, like Paul did in Philippians from jail, Rejoice in the Lord, I'll say it again, rejoice. While he's chained to a Roman guard, there is no risk-free vision from God. And we got to settle that in our heart. Will we face opposition? Absolutely. Nehemiah faced fierce opposition once he got there. Once he got there and he started building, he faces incredible opposition. Physical, political, and spiritual. He faces every kind of opposition you're going to face. And he stares them all down and he obeys God, trusting God's going to give him victory. And you know what? He does. But that's why I named this series Vision, Valor, and Victory. Because you don't just go from vision to victory. You need that valor in between. You've got to have that boldness inside of you that says, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell people about Jesus even though I know they don't want to hear it. Now, I'm not going to be rude. I'm going to be humble. I'm not going to be belligerent. I'm going to be bold. There is a difference in the two. And so Nehemiah describes how he basically chooses faith over fear. He describes his feelings. He tells the king, oh, why shouldn't I be? You know, my city's burned down. My heritage is gone. And, and he just has this kind of flood of emotion right there. And the king looks at him and says, well, what do you want? What are you requesting of me? And then Nehemiah pauses again. And what does he say? He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. I I think those two statements right there, when it says, I was very much afraid, and then he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven, mid-conversation. Now, I'm sure that's a quick, in his mind, dear God, let this, this is it, let it come out right. His heart, you know, and what are you questing? If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Now, the reason we say this again, he doesn't hedge it at all. You know, he doesn't, well, you know, there's a four-step process, and all we've got to worry about is number one right now. He, He doesn't hedge it. He doesn't cloak it. He doesn't hide it. What does he do? He goes straight into, here it is. This is what I want. That's boldness. The king's next questions are, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? Nehemiah answers it, and apparently the king is satisfied, and he allows him to do it. And so Nehemiah had then spent four months preparing for this moment. Four months preparing, praying. And then he had a prayer right before, in the middle of the moment, he still shows where does his heart go? Even though he's afraid, he's terrified in this moment, where does his heart go? I prayed to God. And he plows forward, I'm going to do this. And so then, he answers, he still has to be bold. He could have just taken it all on his shoulders and said, You know what? I'll figure it all out. You don't worry. I'll just, I'm going to go. He, he says, No. He says, I said to the king, verse 7 If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. Look at that right there. Let me take care of this and this. Oh, and my house. Exactly what we did. Take care of the field, then build your house. Nehemiah is even following that same pattern right here. He is prepared. It says, and the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Who gets the credit when the vision succeeds? Nehemiah doesn't take any credit. What does he say? He says, God was with me. The king granted it because God, his hand was with me. Nehemiah takes no credit for himself. And you're going to see that throughout this entire book. Nehemiah is incredibly humble. And it's amazing what we can accomplish together when we don't care who gets the credit. When our goal is for God to be glorified and for His kingdom to grow, it will be amazing what we will be able to accomplish. And so, I want to close out with just a couple of questions for you today. Where is God asking you to be humble in prayer and preparation? Maybe you're looking at your life right now and you're wondering, God, what do you want me to do? Well, it's time to pray about it. Maybe you're hearing me talk about discipleship and what your role is going to be and you think, I, you know what, I know I have a role but I'm not sure what it is. It's time to pray about it. It's time to start preparing. Maybe you know, you know what, I think God's going to be calling me into this. You know, you're talking about outreach and something inside me stirs. Maybe I need to start getting ready for that. Maybe it doesn't start next week but maybe I should start preparing myself for what God wants me to do. Or, where is God asking you for boldness in action? Maybe it is time to step out. Maybe it's time for that change in your life, that thing that God has had in the back of your mind forever that you're saying, well, I'd, you know, I'm not ready. I don't know. I don't know. And, and you know, we just kind of push it off, and we push it off. Maybe it's time for you to take that bold step and say, you know what? It's time. I know what God wants me to do, and he's been waiting on me. I haven't been waiting on him See, I think sometimes when we say we're waiting on God, I think we're, we're saying we're waiting on him to make it easy. And God says, oh, it's not going to be easy. But it is possible because with God, all things are possible. And so where is God asking you for boldness? Maybe it's just to go talk to that person that God put on your heart that you said, well, I, you know, I'll get around to it. And you haven't gotten around to it yet. Maybe it's to rebuild a friendship that got broken, hurt feelings, and you just both kind of went your own ways and you never reconciled and you never resolved it. Maybe you need to go resolve that. Maybe you need to forgive somebody. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness from somebody. You know, all of those require boldness. Boldness is not always the hero conquering. Sometimes boldness is us humbling ourselves before somebody else in confession and asking forgiveness. That takes boldness to do that. And humility and boldness are two sides of the same coin of faith. And anything God asks us to do, we have to employ both of them. We have to be humble and we have to be bold. And we see, you'll see in the rest of the chapter, Nehemiah goes on to Jerusalem and he, he doesn't announce his presence, you know, with grandeur. Hey, the cupbearer's here. I'm here, everybody. He shows up quietly. He goes out. He inspects the walls quietly. He inspects the gates quietly. That's humility. He's preparing again. He gets there, and he starts preparing before he says anything to anyone. And then he gathers the leaders together, and he says, look, here's what God has put on my heart to do, to rebuild the walls to rebuild the gates. And he's able to tell them then everything that happened where the king approved of it and what God had done and all of the priests and all uh, of the leaders that were there were on board and said, okay, then let's do this. Let's rebuild these walls. But we see the same pattern of humility and boldness at play once he gets to Jerusalem that was at play with, king, with the king. So my challenge to you today is where does God want you to be humble and prepare and what bold action is he asking from you? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. And God, I thank you for each person in here. I really do, God. You you are working in their hearts and their lives. God, we are the body of Christ and we are connected. And so God, I I pray for their success because their success is, is your success, is my success. We're connected. Their pain is my pain. And God, I want us all to serve you with glad hearts in boldness and in courage so that you get the glory, God. So that we see hearts mended and changed. God, I pray as we move forward as a church that you bless the work that happens. God, we're not perfect. We don't try to be. But God, we do want to be faithful. And God, we want to serve you. We want to see people come to know you. And we want to teach them to obey your commandments because that is where life is, is in your commandments. Father, be with each person in this room as we go through this week. And God, we pray for our country. Lord, we pray that your hand would just work and that your church would rise. God, that we would not look to government to solve our problems, but God, that we would serve you knowing that you are the one who who puts people in place. That ultimately everyone answers to you, God. Let us walk in strength in humility, and in boldness by your Spirit. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.